June 17, 1960, President Eisenhower's goodwill visit to Japan was abruptly canceled. The Cleveland Indians outbid 14 other teams and signed 17-year-old lefty pitcher Sam McDowell for $75,000. The Baltimore Orioles and Pittsburgh Pirates were leading the American and National Leagues respectively. The Apartment, starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray, was playing at Cleveland's Lowe's Stillman and other movie theaters throughout the country. Clevelanders for Stevenson was one group throughout 44 states campaigning to draft Adlai Stevenson for another run at the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. The CBS lineup of radio soap operas, including Helen Trent, Ma Perkins, and Young Dr. Malone, were still being heard on stations like Cleveland's WGAR. And the new installment of the CBS television network series Twilight Zone featured The Mighty Casey, starring Jack Warden and written by Rod Serling. Where have you gone, Rod Serling? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhaus. Rod Serling was born on December 25th, 1924. He died on June 28, 1975. He began his professional writing career in 1950. Patterns was telecast in 1955 and earned Serling the first of his six Emmys for dramatic writing. He wrote numerous baseball stories, most notably the Mighty Casey for the Twilight Zone series. He grew up in Binghamton, New York. The Rod Serling Archive at the Bundy Museum of History and Art is in Binghamton, as is a marker in the bandstand in tribute to the Twilight Zone episode Walking Distance. A state historical marker also honors Serling in front of the former Binghamton Central High School. It's generally accepted that the character Henry Corwin, played by Art Carney, in the Twilight Zone episode, The Night of the Meek, is so named in tribute to Norman Corwin. There's correspondence from Corwin to Serling in Norman Corwin's letters. In addition to the mighty Casey, Serling's baseball stories include Old MacDonald Had a Curve, Welcome Home Lefty, The Man Who Caught the Ball at Coogan's Bluff, O'Toole from Moscow, and an odyssey, or whatever you'd call it, about baseball. From 1964 to 1972, Serling wrote a unique collection of films, including Seven Days in May, Carol for Another Christmas, Assault on a Queen, Planet of the Apes, and The Man. In The Man, James Earl Jones played the title character from the novel by Irving Wallace. Books about Rod Serling include Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, Serling, The Rise and Twilight of Television's Last Angry Man, Rod Serling, The Dreams and Nightmares of Life in the Twilight Zone, a biography, and As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Serling by His Daughter Anne. Many actors had the good fortune to appear in multiple Serling shows. Jack Warden was in first-season episodes of The Twilight Zone as James A. Corey in The Lonely and manager Mouth McGarry in The Mighty Casey, plus a 1953 teleplay of Serling's Old MacDonald Had a Curve. There are numerous off-ramps we can take from that information. Serling and Baseball... Serling and that time period from 1964 to 1972, 
Serling and his early days in television, just to name three. And we will start to take some of those off-ramps when Where Have You Gone, Rod Serling continues. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. There probably isn't a day that goes by that the Twilight Zone is not on television somewhere. But what of the other great work of Rod Serling in his early days as a television writer. I'm looking at the book Total Television by Alex McNeil, the fourth edition, a comprehensive guide to programming from 1948 to the present. The present when the fourth edition came out was 1996, but it's an excellent reference for the early days of television, including a detailed list of Emmy Award winners, starting with the first Emmy Awards in 1948. Let's go to 1955. Best Original Teleplay Writing, Rod Serling, for Patterns, on the Kraft Television Theater, NBC. 1956, Best Teleplay Writing, One Hour or More, Rod Serling, for Requiem for a Heavyweight, on Playhouse 90, CBS. Requiem for a Heavyweight also got Best Single Program, Best Single Performance Actor, for Jack Palance, and Best Direction, one hour or more, for Ralph Nelson. 1957, Best Teleplay Writing, One Hour or More, Rod Serling, for The Comedian, on Playhouse 90, CBS. The Comedian also received the award for Best Single Program of the Year. Serling also won a Peabody Award, And jumping ahead here in the book, the George Foster Peabody Broadcasting Awards were established in 1940 and are administered by the Henry W. Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. Awards are given in radio, television, and related fields, but only those pertaining to national television are listed here. The award categories have varied from year to year, And in recent years, the categories themselves have been abolished. Serling won a Peabody Award for writing in 1956. It's the first listing of a Peabody Award for television writing. You can see telecasts of old baseball games, football games, basketball games, hockey games, situation comedies, Perry Mason reruns, so on and so forth. But it's rare to see the great programs of the golden age of television, like Patterns, like Requiem for a Heavyweight and The Comedian, like the other great programs on Playhouse 90 and the other anthology television shows of the time, something that is also gone and too much forgotten. Patterns and Requiem for a Heavyweight were both made into feature films. 
The film version of Patterns opened in New York on March 27, 1956. Everett Sloan, Ed Begley, and Elizabeth Wilson were back from the cast of the teleplay, but film star Van Heflin replaced Richard Kiley in the lead role of Fred Staples. Serling adapted the screenplay from his original story, and Fielder Cook was back as director. Requiem for a Heavyweight did not reach the big screen until October 16, 1962. In this case, the main cast was changed completely, with Anthony Quinn, Jackie Gleason, Mickey Rooney, and Julie Harris in the lead roles, and added a cameo appearance by the young boxing star Cassius Clay not long before he became Muhammad Ali. As with Patterns, the original director, in this case Ralph Nelson, was brought back to direct the film, and Serling again adapted the screenplay from his original story. Neither film packs the punch of the live television version, but today they still pack the punch of Rod Serling's writing. One final aside about Requiem for a Heavyweight. In 1957, BBC Sunday Night Theater mounted a production of Serling's story, According to Sean Connery, a biography by Kenneth Passingham, the BBC wanted Jack Palance to reprise his role as Mountain McClintock, but Palance was unavailable. The role went to Connery, one of his first, and the rest is history. And the rest of Where Have You Gone, Rod Serling, is still ahead after a short break. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. As Where Have You Gone, Rod Serling continues... I'm joined by Nicholas Parisi, author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. Nick serves on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod Serling's legacy. He's a former staff writer and editor for Good Times Magazine in Long Island. He's also a musician and vocalist. In 2010, his former band, Arioch, released a CD with the Serling-inspired title Between Light and Shadow on Retrospect Records. Nick, thanks for joining me to talk about Rod Serling. How did you become so involved in Rod Serling's legacy and come to write the book Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination? Well, I became involved in Serling's, uh, well, became involved as a fan, like uh, so many other people did through The Twilight Zone. You know, The Twilight Zone was my gateway to Rod Serling's genius. And I became a fan when I was a kid, when I was nine or ten years old, watching the show on WPIX Channel 11 in New York. And... And uh, from the time I first saw it, I was just I was just hypnotized by it. I just I, I fell in love with it very, very quickly. And it just kind of grew from there. Very gradually, I became aware that this guy, Rod Serling, had written so much other stuff besides The Twilight Zone. He had such a phenomenal career that I became uh, interested in, in finding out more about everything that he had written. Did, did you notice that it was time for a book like this? Yeah, I, I think that it's certainly the first book that tackles his career in, in this specific way. I mean, I mean, the biographies obviously covered his entire life or career, but but they didn't cover it in a show by show, series by series way that my book does. So so I like to say that my book, I, I don't really consider it a strict biography, even though it's got biographical elements to it. It's to me, it's it's kind of equal parts biography 
reference guide and a literary analysis of Rod Serling's work. So it's it's equal parts of each of those. And again, I, you know, one of the biographies actually, um, the one that was written by Gordon Sander, I think, you know, and, and of course he was doing his book before internet. And uh, I remember in his, uh, in his videography at the end of his book, he specifically said, you know, this is the best I could do. I invite future scholars to you know, you know jump, take this as a jumping off point and, you know, finish what I started kind of. So so I did have that in mind as well, that, you know, that, you know, he kind of did that uh, with whatever tools he had at the time. And I wanted to complete it, to complete the complete the list. So. So, yeah. So my book was uh, I felt was a, a, a needed thing at this point in time. And for people that, that have the book and look at the list, they'll see, as you've just alluded to, Twilight Zone, for instance, the entire series is available on DVD. Night Gallery, the entire series is available on DVD. Uh, the Loner, the, the one season, that's available on DVD. But much of the other material is not. And some of the programs, uh, the, the, the projects that Rod Serling worked on post Twilight Zone, like Carol for Another Christmas or A Storm in Summer or The Man, and especially a lot of the golden age of television work. Do you see more of that showing up on YouTube, on discs? Do you have any insight as to the possibility we'll be able to see more of that down the road? I hope so. I know, I know that, I, I, well, I, to answer your first question, I do see some of it showing up on YouTube. You know, some other stuff just hasn't been released. And I know that in terms of, let's say, like Playhouse 90, for example, which mm -hmm. is, you know, one of those golden age of television shows that Rod Sterling wrote for, and he wrote 10 episodes of it. And most people know Requiem for Heavyweight is the, is the, is the you know, the famous one. But he also wrote The Comedian, which won an Emmy. And that's and those two have been released on on certain compilations I mean, I would love to see Rod Serling's Playhouse 90, you know, release all 10 episodes. Yeah, but unfortunately, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon because so many of the rights issues are convoluted. And but some of the later stuff, like you mentioned, like The Man, I don't know why The Man hasn't been released, you know, more more readily. Uh, you know, it's a feature film starring James Earl Jones, you know, a major name and and, you know, and Rod Serling, obviously. And it was, you know, it was in theaters in the early 70s and. And it doesn't really even show up on TV uh, anymore. So, you know, so something like that is, you know, a mystery to me why it hasn't been released uh, to this point. Uh, the, the man is I feel the same way about the man. And and like you say, you know, things are on YouTube and then the next day they're not on YouTube for the for the moment as we're talking the man can be seen on YouTube. But that's not the same as, as seeing it in a nice, crisp well-produced uh, DVD. And, you know, I think that's a shame. And I think the same for Storm in Summer, uh, Carol for Another Christmas. All of these were, were projects he did post-Twilight Zone. Is there a common theme that you see to those different projects? Well, uh, you know, there are common themes that that go throughout Sterling's entire career from the beginning all the way to the end. So, I mean, he he had his uh, he had his passions, you know, he had certain issues that he was going to deal with no matter what the genre was or no matter what the what the project was, you know. So so those kind of things would come up, um, you know, things like prejudice, things like racism, things like um, individual morality, things like mob mentality. Uh, certain political issues, if those aren't, you know, those are political issues, but uh, certain other political issues would come up in regardless of what shows he was dealing with. So, so uh, you know, the man, you know, we've mentioned a couple times now for people who don't know, the man was uh, was based on a novel. He uh, certainly adapted a Wallace Wallace Irving, I believe. Uh, Ir Wallace Irving Wallace, yes. Irving Wallace. <laughs> I knew I had yep. to, I knew that didn't sound quite right. Irving Wallace uh, novel uh, as a screenplay, and, and originally it was written for television. It was it was written as a as a television uh, a TV movie starring James Earl, J Earl Jones and a bunch of other names. You know, Burgess Meredith is in it, um, and a few other Twilight Zone regulars are are, are in. It. And uh, when it was done, when they finished producing the film, Paramount decided to release it theatrically. And uh, so it was released in theaters and it, it did not do well. It did not get good, good reviews and it did not do good, well in the, at the box office and it, it disappeared. And I, I like the movie. I think it's a very good film. And I think Serling addresses, you know, it's about the first black president, the first African-American mm -hmm. president. James Earl Jones becomes president through a, a freak uh, scenario where the 
president goes to Germany and a, and a building collapses on him, along with some of the, a bunch of his staff, and the vice president is is in you know in, uh, incapacitated, right. and uh, so he's the speaker of the house. He becomes president overnight, and he's the first black president. It's about what he what he deals with, and it, that was right in Serling's wheelhouse. Uh, you know, this is the whole what what he could possibly be dealing with at that top point in time in the early seventies. So I think, for, especially for Serling fans, people who are attuned to Serling's sensibilities, uh, that's one to seek out. It's it's a it's a good movie. It's it's gotten a lot of flack over the years, I think, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I I was surprised at how how much I liked it when I finally saw it. The other one I mentioned from that time period that uh, it, it popped up a few years ago and seems to have kind of disappeared almost as quickly is Carol for Another Christmas. Uh, how do you feel about that one? Yeah, that one um, actually it has been. Turner Classic Movies has been showing it. Sometimes it'll show up at three o'clock in the morning, so you right. can kind of look for it. But, but I just I just saw it, uh, you know a, a blog about Carol for Another Christmas that I posted on my website just just today actually. So so it's apparently getting some you know some uh, notice after all these years. And Carol for Another Christmas is a very interesting piece of work. It's it was written actually in 1964, and it was written. Serling wrote it in between. Well. He wrote it right at the end of the Twilight Zone, basically, mm-hmm. and it was written as a as a part of a, a proposed series that was supposed to promote the work of the United Nations. And Xerox, the corporation Xerox, you know, put the money into this project and said, "We're just going to bankroll this whole project, and we're going to put it on TV commercial free. It's going to go on. It's just going to have a you know, message from Xerox at the beginning, and then it's going to go on commercial free." And everyone who was involved in the project, Serling, the director, you know, um, Mankiewicz and, and Serling, they all worked for scale. I mean, they all mm-hmm. took the minimum. They all took the minimum pay for the for this project because they thought it was a worthwhile project. And and it's an adaptation, obviously, of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Mm-hmm. And Serling, you know, puts his own spin on it. It's a modern version. It's uh, set, you know, it's it, it addresses, you know, the nuclear, it addresses Hiroshima, it addresses, uh, you know, World War Two. I I like I like Carol for Another Christmas. It got criticized for being preachy, mm-hmm. and it is and it is preachy. I mean, I'm not going to say that it isn't. Um, it was it was in a sense propaganda. It was it was written with a, with an agenda. It was written to promote the idea of the of the United Nations, and. My defense of A Carol for Another Christmas, as far as that goes anyway, is just that it, it, Sterling defends the United Nations just in a general sense. He, 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 he defends the, the idea that we should work together, that we should talk to each other, and that the world should be involved with it. You know, nations should be involved with each other. And that's, you know, who's going to argue with that? I mean, that's a pretty, pretty tame, you know, statement to make. But unfortunately, at the time when this movie came out, organizations like the John Birch Society that, that that went crazy, and they they wrote letters saying this is like this is communist propaganda, and 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 you know, and Sterling, you know, just kind of took it as he took everything else. Oh, what was that? What am I going to do? You know, like, there's going to be crazy people regardless of what I do, and so it's so it's it's an interesting story. I mean, the New York Times called it called it the uh, the darkest, most unusual version of a Christmas Carol. And again, I, I I invite people to seek that out because for Sterling fans, it's it's well worth watching, and particularly. You know, the, the story you know, follows the Dickens story, which is, you know, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. Mm-hmm. And in this version, when you get to the ghost of Christmas future, it is a segment of, of the film that is right out of the Twilight Zone. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, you know, it's a segment where Peter Sellers plays a character called the Imperial Me. Mm-hmm. And he's, in, and he's exist, existing in this this uh, nuclear wasteland with all these, you know, survivors of the of the bomb. And it's I love that segment of the film. I, th- I think it's great, and I think uh, you know I kid around with people all the time saying someone's got to take that and turn it into a standalone Twilight Zone episode. Just just take that, edit it out, and somehow work it into it as a Twilight Zone episode because it really works as a Twilight Zone episode. And I think that seg- segment just saves the whole movie. I think it's worth seeing just 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 for that. Well, and it's got a tremendous cast. You mentioned Peter Sellers and the Sterling Hayden is in it, an all-star cast right down the line. But I, I was also happy that you mentioned there's so much of, of Rod Serling's philosophy that goes through all of his work. And when I got your book, I was especially delighted to see the list of all of the baseball uh, scripts that he has done. He's done a lot of boxing and a lot of baseball. And I'm just wondering if there's anything about baseball that you think fits with his uh, overall message. 
in a, in a way, yes. I mean, the first thing I just to let people know, yeah, Rod Sterling was a baseball fan. He loved baseball. He's more famous for his boxing stuff because Requiem for Heavyweight was such a big hit for him. But he wrote in that baseball genre um, almost as often, if not more often. And he was a Los Angeles Dodgers fan. I think that one of the reasons he became a Dodgers fan was because of Jackie Robinson. He was a, he was a huge Jackie Robinson fan. And uh, again, getting back to the civil rights issue, and and so so the first major league team to have an African American player uh, was going to have a special place in Rod Sterling's heart. And so so yeah, he, he was a, a you know a, a Los Angeles Dodgers fan his whole life. And and uh, I make the point in the book that there's a couple different baseball stories that Rod Sterling wrote early in his career. One is called "The Man Who Caught the Ball at Coogan's Bluff." And it was an episode of Studio One, I believe. And then there was an, a show called. Uh, Welcome Home Lefty, I believe that mm -hmm. was the other one, and that was for uh, Lux Video Theater. And in both of these shows, both of them, there is a scene with the Dodgers, uh, where the Dodgers are playing, and you hear the the, the uh, public address announcer, the next batter is coming up, and who is it? It's Jackie Robinson. When Jackie Robinson is announced, the crowd goes wild. And that's not an accident. You know, Rod Sterling didn't do anything by accident. You know, Rod Sterling didn't just pick a name out of a hat. He picked Jackie Robinson for a reason, because these were shows that, you know, he wasn't making any big political statement in these shows. But if he had a chance to make any statement in, in support of, of civil rights, he was going to do it. And so what did he do? He had Jackie Robinson be announced and have him be applauded. Um, that was that meant something to Rod Sterling. So baseball. Yeah. And so that's that part of it. And he just, yeah, he loved baseball. He, he liked um, well, he loved everything that we loved about baseball. <laughs> Well, and there's, and there's a great point in there about paying attention to those little details. And I suppose that's one of the things that made his work stand out is that attention to detail and timing in various instances. You mentioned the timing of uh, the, the man in 1964 when that, I, I believe 64 was when the book was written. And Carol for Another Christmas, that was 1964. I would think that the man might get a little different response now that there has actually been an African-American president. And along that line, you know, I want to touch on a couple of Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, when I was 40-ish, my favorite Twilight Zone episode was Walking Distance. And as I got older and got into my 50s and beyond... I became particularly fond of changing of the guard. And I wonder if that resonates with you, those two stories for people of, you know, certain age groups. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I, I generally tell people that walking distance is my favorite also. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 50. If you would ask me that question, you know, 20 years ago, probably, I probably would not have said walking distance. Although I always loved walking distance. Even when I was a kid, I got it. Even when I was a kid, I got that feeling of nostalgia and everything. And I, I always loved that episode. And it was always maybe my top five, but it was never really my favorite. But, mm -hmm. but once I got older, maybe 40 or so, yes, walking distance suddenly became my favorite episode. And I think changing of the guard, yeah, it certainly could fall into those same, you know, same idea of maybe when you hit 50 or, or when you hit 55 or 60, because it's about, again, about what I call one of Rod Sterling's obsolete men. It's about the, the characters who feel like they've just, they're past their prime, they didn't give enough, they didn't accomplish enough to society, you know, to society, and they feel like failures and they don't know where they fit in anymore. And that's Donald Pleasance plays the professor in that mm -hmm. episode, and he's being forced to retire just by the, on the basis of age, and he feels like a relic, and he feels like he's obsolete. And and it, yeah, of course, it speaks to speaks to anybody who's in that that point of their life where they feel like maybe yeah they're taking stock of their life and feel like they they haven't done it. And I think the point I, I make in the book is that the remarkable thing about Rod Serling, he was addressing that topic from the time he was like 28 years old. From the time he came back from the war, when he was he served in World War II, and from the time he came back when he was 21 years old, he very quickly started writing about old people and writing about people who were past their prime, people who who felt that they, you know, that they didn't give enough, didn't accomplish enough. And it's amazing that that a man that young, uh, that was so predominant in his mind, but it was. And it, it may be amazing to some for somebody as talented as he was, the, the number of rejections he took early in his career and the, and the whole business with uh, when, when Patterns was broadcast on television, the five-year overnight success, things like that. And I want to ask you about his uh, radio career. You have a list of the radio programs in here. I suppose they're even harder to find than a lot of the others that we've mentioned. 
But what was the influence, uh, as you see it, of his radio career on his later career? Well, he, you know, he, did, he started in radio for by necessity because that, that was the only game in town at the, at the time. I mean, the TV didn't, didn't really even exist yet in 1949. Uh, certainly it existed, but, you know, it hadn't really taken over yet. So he started in radio. And when he came back from the war, he uh, enrolled in Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And in Antioch, the radio station, WABS, you know, Antioch Broadcasting System, the radio station was basically defunct. It was dormant. And Rod Sterling basically took control of it. He said, all right, well, let's get this thing back up and running again. And and he took control of it. And Rod Sterling, you know, again, was a go-getter. He was, he was Rod Sterling had enough energy for 20 people. You know, he was just one of those guys. He just, you know, he was constantly moving, going, going, going. And um, so he took control of the radio station. He got it, ended up being uh, simulcast on a couple of local stations, WJEL and WJEM in Springfield, Illinois. And he produced his own dramatic radio series on that that station. He wrote every episode of it. And so radio influenced Rod Sterling in terms of, you know, in terms of the way he uses his language and in terms of specifically in terms of, I mean, if you go to the Twilight Zone, if you look at the idea of bookending the Twilight Zone episodes with introductions and outroductions, you know, the closing narrations, mm-hmm. that was a radio technique. That really was. I mean, that was something that he really took from radio, from, you know, the idea of a, an announcer saying, well, here's tonight's play on, uh, like, you know, that, that's a little play, you know, whatever the playhouse it was, and introducing the show and saying something about it and then, you know, and, you know, something at the end. That was right from radio. So, so he took that, and, and radio was, you know, he grew up listening to radio. He grew up listening to The Shadow and, and Lights Out and things like that. So so he took a lot from it. But he always, you know, once, I mean, he started writing for television in 1950. So he saw the writing on the wall. He was not one of these people who was, like, sentimental for the you know, the golden age of radio. He, he, was, he was very, very anxious to get out of radio and get into television. And he jumped right on that bandwagon, and he had great timing because at the time they needed writers, and, and he, was, he was there to fill it. I've, I've not asked you about uh, Rod Serling's Night Gallery, in part because from what I've read, I get the sense that th- there was a lot of frustration that he had with that program. And yet the, the pilot, the three stories in, in the pilot film rank with some of his best work. Do you think I'm, I'm correct about his experience with Night Gallery or not giving it enough due in his overall uh, work? No, I think that's almost exactly how I would put it. It was a very frustrating experience for him because he did not get along with the producer, the producer uh, Jack Laird. And, and and in my research with the book, I, Jack Laird is the only person I found that had problems with Rod Sterling. I mean, Rod Sterling got along with everybody. He just he just did. I, you can't find a person who would say a bad word about Rod Sterling. But for whatever reason, Jack Laird and Rod Sterling just did not see eye to eye on Night Gallery from day one. I mean, it was right from the get go and it never got any better. But the thing about Night Gallery that I, I tried to stress in, in the book is that, you know, because Rod Sterling has had so much frustration with the show, there have been a lot of myths about Night Gallery that have cropped up over the years. And, and you know, there are people who think that Rod, did, Rod Stern didn't write anything for Night Gallery, that it was just his name on it, he slapped his name on it, and that was it. Or if he just did the introductions, or or that if he did write for it, that everything was rewritten and, you know, the, you know uh, Jack Lair rewrote everything, and it's really not Rod Sterling's work. And, and none of that is true. Uh, you know, Rod Sterling wrote... I think 38 of the 99 Rod's uh, Night Gallery episodes. Mm-hmm. I mean, so that's almost 40% of the of the show. So he wrote a lot of Night Gallery episodes. And not only did he write a lot of them, but a lot of them are really, really good. And, and those three from the pilot film, yes, I would certainly count those amongst them. And there are a couple of others. I always mention my, my particular favorite is, is one called The Messiah on Mott Street. It's an episode that's this Christmas slash Hanukkah episode. Uh, that I just love. I think it's a beautiful piece of work. It's a you know, it's a heartrending, you know, heartwarming story about a about an old Jewish man who's on his deathbed and and he just wants to stay alive for his grandson. That's the only thing they have to his grandson. The only thing he has is his grandpa, and grandpa. The only thing he has is his grandson. And he wants to stay alive just for him. And and it's about that relationship. And it's really a beautiful story. And that I think is is amongst Sterling's best, regardless of you know of his whole career. So, so there are episodes like that. It's just that Rod Sterling had a lot of frustration in terms of he had no control over the series uh, in terms of casting, in terms of director, in terms of what everybody else wrote for the series. I mean, you know, so there were a lot of bad episodes that he didn't write. A lot of bad, there were some bad episodes he wrote also, but, but some bad episodes that other people wrote. And so he had no, no control over any, anything else other than his own scripts. And even his own scripts, every now and then, yes, they would be edited 
beyond his control, and he was, you know, wasn't real happy about that either. Let's turn to the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. Tell us about the foundation, and in particular, how you seek to educate people about his passion for justice. Well, the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation was founded in the mid-80s, 1985, and it was founded primarily by Rod Serling's first mentor, Helen Foley. She was a teacher, she was a teacher in Binghamton. She was one of Rod Serling's first mentors, and she was a, a champion of his work. And she spurred the formation of the, of the foundation. And I became president of the foundation uh, just, uh, just this year. And um, so what we try to do is, yeah, we try to preserve Serling's legacy. And that means even to the point of preserving some of the physical films and things like that. We talked about, you know, how some of these golden age of, of TV shows are lost, you know, but if we can get a hold of one of them, we want to make sure that it's preserved. So we do that. We do that with his films and scripts and things like that. We have every year we uh, before COVID uh, put a put a kibosh on it, but we run something called Serling Fest, and we have three in a row in Binghamton where we where people from across the country uh, join, you know, get together and watch rare Serling uh, films and talk about them. We have presentations and that kind of thing, and talk about you know what Rod Serling's philosophy was through his work, and you know do readings and things like that. And uh, you know right now we're working on uh, the, our project right now is we're working on getting a statue erected. In Binghamton, he loved his hometown, his hometown of Binghamton, New York, and he, he professed his love for his hometown so so often and so profusely that that uh, he needs to be honored there, and and he is in certain ways. And you know, the park that he played in, Recreation Park, has a marker for him. It says, you know, walking distance, creator of the Twilight Zone, Rod Serling. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a carousel there that has artwork from, inspired by the Twilight Zone there. And but we want a statue. We want a statue built there. And I think I'm very, very optimistic. I think we're actually going to get that done this well next year, as I say this year, but next year for sure. And we're working on other things too. So like a like a Rod Serling Museum. I mean, that's the big, you know, the big goal that we have is to have a place where people can go to learn about everything that Rod Serling wrote his whole career and his his presence as a speaker and as a humanitarian and as a, as a, as a as an advocate for social justice these were all issues these these were uh, integral parts of Rod Serling and we want to make them you know make people aware of them well speaking as a new member i i have already impressed with with what you're doing uh, i've not been to Serling Fest yet but i hope we're going to get past COVID-19, and that, instead of being virtual, can be uh, an actual attended event again. And we will make sure that we get out the website and people know how to check out what the foundation offers. And uh, hopefully anybody that's interested in Rod Serling will be interested in the foundation. And Nick, I appreciate you spending so much time with me to talk about Rod Serling. And thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Morris. It was great talking to you. After a short break, I'll be back with more of Where Have You Gone, Rod Serling, and look further at some of his work after the golden age of television and the Twilight Zone. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. Rod Serling was to the golden age of television as Norman Corwin was to the golden age of radio. The best of Serling's work was intelligent and thought provoking. And like Corwin's golden age of radio, Serling's golden age of television was all too brief. The similarity between the ending of Corwin's platform on radio and Serling's platform on television is uncanny. With Corwin, it was CBS radio. And with Serling, it was CBS television. 
In both instances, initially, the network wanted the quality provided by writers like Corwin and Serling, even if it wasn't the most profitable. Gradually, however, profits won out. Corwin was told his work, often presented on a sustaining basis with no sponsor at all, could no longer be sustained by the network. In Serling's case, the great live anthology programs like the Alcoa Hour, Playhouse 90, Ford Television Theater, and Studio One, to name just a few, were gradually phased out, often in favor of filmed or taped situation comedies. Serling found a way around that, the demise of the anthology shows, with The Twilight Zone from 1959 to 1964. But after The Twilight Zone ran its course for the first time, Serling still had something to say. And like Corwin, Serling turned to writing for film. And like Corwin, Serling's writing for film never achieved the acclaim of his previous work. But Serling's film writing from 1964 to 1972 including a couple that are in a gray area because they were on television, but were essentially film or film-type projects, are notable and worthy of discussion. And in particular, I'm talking about Seven Days in May, Carol for Another Christmas, Planet of the Apes, A Storm in Summer, and The Man. Seven Days in May reteamed Serling with director John Frankenheimer. It features a knockout cast led by Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, and Frederick March, supported by Martin Balsam, Edmund O'Brien, John Houseman, Andrew Duggan, Ava Gardner, Hugh Marlowe, Whit Bissell, George McCready, Richard Anderson, Malcolm Atterbury, and John Larkin. Serling's screenplay is based on the novel by Fletcher Nebel and Charles W. Bailey II. It is generally considered to be the best of his film screenplays. The dialogue is sharp and memorable, especially in scenes between Lancaster and Douglas and Lancaster and March. It's about a military plot to overthrow the elected government. Watch it and decide for yourself if it's relevant in the 2020s. It's in the same vein as Frankenheimer's The Manchurian Candidate, even if it doesn't rise to quite that level. Carol for Another Christmas was written by Serling and produced and directed by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Like Seven Days in May, it features an all-star cast, led by Peter Sellers and Sterling Hayden, with Ben Gazzara, Eva Marie Saint, Steve Lawrence, Robert Shaw, Britt Eklund, Pat Hingle, James Chiquita, and Percy Rodriguez. It was commissioned by the United Nations and shown on ABC without commercial interruption on December 28, 1964. It has been described as lecturing, long-winded, heavy-handed, pretentious, condescending, didactic, depressing, and dull. It was never shown again until December 12, 2016 on Turner Classic Movies. It has occasionally popped up on TCM since then. Is it better to try and fail than not try at all? Is it a diamond in hiding or guilty of all the flaws some critics have ascribed to it? or both. To coin a phrase out of the Twilight Zone, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Planet of the Apes was originally a novel by Pierre Boulle. You may recognize him as the author of The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Producer Arthur P. Jacobs bought the film rights and hired Serling to write the screenplay. Charlton Heston came on board in the lead role of astronaut George Taylor. The general concept of Serling's screenplay harkens back to the use of science fiction 
to comment on subjects such as race and the threat of nuclear holocaust. Whether for cost or content, Serling's screenplay was not satisfactory, and Michael Wilson was brought in. Serling and Wilson share the on-screen credit for the final screenplay. Probably the most notable contribution Serling made to the screenplay was the ending. If you know it, you don't need me to describe it. And if you don't know it, I won't spoil it for you here. The film spawned sequels, remakes, reboots, video games, merchandise, a true franchise. A Storm in Summer was the Hallmark Hall of Fame presentation on NBC the night of February 6, 1970. Long before the Hallmark Channel, the Hallmark Movies Channel, and Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, the Hallmark Hall of Fame debuted on December 24, 1951, and ran on NBC from 1952 to 1978. During those years, it presented some of the best programs on television. In Serling, The Dreams and Nightmares of Life in the Twilight Zone, Joel Engel writes that A Storm in Summer received nearly unanimous praise for story, direction, production qualities, and acting. Serling had not enjoyed such a renaissance in a long time. Peter Ustinov won the Emmy for Outstanding Performance by a Leading Actor in a Single Role for A Storm in Summer, and the show won the Emmy for Outstanding Dramatic Program. Buzz Kulik was nominated for an Emmy for his direction, but Serling was not nominated. Thirty years later, the legendary director Robert Wise remade A Storm in Summer using Serling's script with Peter Falk in the lead role. It was also made for television as a combined production of Hallmark Entertainment and Showtime Original Pictures for All Ages. It was Wise's last directing credit. He died in 2005 at age 91. His version of the story is available on DVD. The remake won a Daytime Emmy Award for Best Children's Special. Falk was nominated for his acting, and Serling was posthumously nominated for his writing. And Serling won the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Children's Script. And finally, a bit more about the 1972 film The Man. The Man gets all of three sentences in Gordon F. Sanders' biography of Serling. It gets a paragraph in Engel's biography, Note that both of those books were written years before Barack Obama was elected the 44th president of the United States. Serling's script is an adaptation of a 1964 Irving Wallace novel in which a series of deaths and circumstances leads to the first black president. It reached number two on the New York Times bestsellers list and was the fifth highest selling novel of the year. Serling's adaptation was a made-for-television film that ultimately received a theatrical release. In a 2009 interview, James Earl Jones, who played the character Douglas Dillman, who ascends to the presidency, said, Had we known it was going to be released as a motion picture, we would have asked for more time and more production money. I regret that. Serling said... That taught me not to write about people who don't go to the bathroom. Again, is it better to try and fail than not try at all? Serling was 48 years old when the man came out on July 19, 1972. It's hard to believe he was dead less than three years later. Patterns by Rod Serling was the 463rd presentation of the Kraft Television Theater when first broadcast on January 12, 1955. Even if Patterns was the best play ever presented by the Kraft Television Theater, there was a best presentation before Patterns 
and a best presentation after patterns. Unfortunately, most episodes of Kraft Television Theater can't be viewed today easily, if at all. There's a box set of shows titled James Dean, The Lost Television Legacy. It includes two episodes of the Kraft series and a Criterion release of the film The Fugitive Kind, written by Tennessee Williams, includes three plays by Tennessee Williams, broadcast April 16, 1958. On the other hand, every episode of Rod Serling's Night Gallery is commercially available. Serling wrote all three stories for the pilot episode, aired on November 8, 1969. Most notable of these is Eyes, and it's most notable as the directorial debut of Steven Spielberg. It's a gripping story of a blind woman played by Joan Crawford. By most, if not all accounts, the best episode of Night Gallery is They're Tearing Down Tim Riley's Bar. It was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Single Program, Comedy or Drama, losing out to a television adaptation of the play The Andersonville Trial, directed by George C. Scott. The Andersonville Trial also won a Peabody Award. The entire series of Night Gallery is available on DVD, and there's an excellent book about the series titled Rod Serling's Night Gallery, an after-hours tour by Scott Skelton, and Jim Benson, with a foreword by John Aston. There's also a terrific documentary, part of the American Masters series, Rod Serling Submitted for Your Approval, from 1995. Finally, I have not mentioned Blanche Gaines. In late 1951, when Serling was still a struggling young writer, a New York agent named Blanche Gaines took him on as a client. She stuck with him as he continued to struggle and helped him break through. Without Blanche Gaines, I may not be talking about Rod Serling today. And I hope you have a Blanche Gaines in your past, present, or future. I'm Morris Eckhaus host of Where Have You Gone? Thanks again to Nick Parisi for joining me, and please check out the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation at rodserling.com. Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Jeff Santala designed our logo. Special thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Carl Mastricola, and Greg Brown. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhouse. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwen Company.